Welcome to Hub and Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub and Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market. Welcome, one and all, to the NGI podcast. I'm Chris Lenton, and we are privileged today to have as our guest Luisa Palacios. Luisa is a senior research scholar at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. Luisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation, Christopher. I'm delighted to be here. So I'd I'd like to start off by talking a little bit about the energy crisis over in Europe. Natural gas prices have broken records, and they've also literally broken uh, energy companies in Europe. Recently, energy retail became the 29th energy supplier to go out of business in the UK over the last year, which is really quite hard to fathom. There are those who say the the crisis was or is artificial and that fundamentals don't really justify these prices and the panic. But what people don't realize is that there's actually a Latin America element to this that LNG in particular last year was being used in record amounts in South America because of drought and and other reasons, which was making the global market that much tighter. Uh, Last year, Brazil was the third highest growth market in LNG after China and Korea. I wonder, Luisa, if you could talk a little bit about this and maybe whether you think that this sort of thing will continue in Latin America going forward. Thank you for the question. Indeed, Latin America experienced one of the strongest LNG demand surges in history last year. And really, it was a combination of factors that led to this. Uh, First, you did have oil and gas production in Latin America decline substantially due to the pandemic. Uh, Gas production in particular declined by more than 10% in South America in 2020. Hmm. Second, the second factor is that there was a substantial recovery in domestic demand in 2020. I mean, like other regions in the planet, in the world, Latin America experienced a significant recession in 2020 because of uh, lockdowns. It was about 7%. And the region experienced, like others, a substantial recovery in 2020, which the IMF has uh, uh, pinged at probably more than 6% growth last year. And so Mm. what that meant is that from a significant decline in domestic consumption, you went to the opposite to a significant increase in then in a or significant recovery. And so this coupled with one of the worst droughts to record that South America has seen meant a perfect storm uh, for the huge spike in LNG imports that we saw in Latin America's winter. And so, you know, yes, Latin America, one of the things about Latin America and why it was so, I think, disruptive for the LNG market last year is because, you know, the it's a very volatile type of uh, demand and it's very seasonal. And so, for example, so LNG imports to Latin America grew by about 68% in the January and October period. When you do the analysis, which is the last uh, bulk of data that we have, but it was particularly strong 
in the month from July to October because of the seasonality that you have. So that Latin America was pulling 30% of LNG exports during that time. 30% of global global LNG exports? No, of U.S. LNG exports during that time. Okay. The U.S. is a most important supplier to Latin America. It's not the only supplier, but it, it represents a substantial amount, in some cases, 80% of LNG exports to the region. Hmm. It's, and that's remarkable when you think about the fact that 20 years ago, LNG essentially didn't exist in Latin America. I remember when I arrived in Chile in 2008, I think the first LNG terminal in the region was being developed. And now, now it's, it's everywhere. I just read a stat from the UN that gas accounted for 31% of the region's total primary energy supply in last year in 2020 or two years ago now. Uh, and that's from 24% in 2000. And that same prediction said that gas would replace hydropower as the main source of electricity generation in the region by 2030 if we continued on this pace of growth. Do you see that, that kind of growth for natural gas in the region continuing? So there's, there, I think there's one thing that uh, to answer your question is that there's natural gas imports have been strong in Latin America, have been growing for quite some time. It's the LNG import component that is uh, quite new, right? Mm -hmm. And so it is so that you have an idea just from the U.S. trade perspective with Latin America, about 40 to 50 percent of natural gas exports of the U.S. have gone to Latin America, mostly because of pipe or natural gas pipeline exports to Mexico. And Mm -hmm. actually the region represents about 8 percent of total natural gas exported through pipelines. Not as an important player on the LNG front, but it has been an important player on the natural gas import market because, as you just mentioned, the infrastructure that was developed originally, and you have uh, have the example of Chile and Argentina, is that it was developed through pipelines. And so that the, the region has been very accustomed to importing and exporting natural gas or, or the trade of natural gas through a system of pipelines. It is LNG that is uh, has become a very different component since, I would say, 2016, which is when the U.S. also started to become an important LNG exporter. So do I think that the primary natural gas will continue to increase in terms of primary energy consumption? I do think so, mm. in part because when you look at the same stats and look at the oil component of primary energy consumption, it is in the region is more than 40%, which is one of the highest globally. So it's uh, the same line with, uh, with the Middle East, for example. But globally, oil represents less than 30 or around 30% of primary energy consumption. So the region is much more uh, oil dominated than natural gas dominated. Natural gas has been, and so there has been a shift away from oil towards natural gas as a, as a what it's perceived as a cleaner type of hydrocarbon fuel. And that shift, I do expect that it will continue, not only because of infrastructure or, or just electricity generation capacity that is being developed is that there's something else going on here, which has to do with the significant share of hydroelectricity in electricity generation in Latin America in the context of climate change has meant that this once very, very reliable source of electricity, as we just talked about, it's been experiencing droughts. And so, you know, in the, in South America in particular, hydroelectricity can represent in some countries 50%, in other countries 60 to 70%, like Brazil and even in Colombia. So, you know, it's a huge share of a source of energy that is believed to be very clean, very cheap, 
but it's also very impacted by all of this climate change impact on on waterfalls and rainfalls. Yeah. Well, then, you know, going going back to LNG, it's, it, it's interesting that the LNG demand is coming from these areas that have these huge resources of natural gas, you know, Brazil with its pre-salt and Argentina with Vaca Muerta. Should these countries be doing more to, to develop their own resources or is LNG sort of the the right stopgap solution for those seasonality swings, you know, as the world transitions to cleaner fuels? That's a fantastic question, Christopher. But I think I think we should put this into context. In both cases, Brazil and Argentina, yes, they will be developing their domestic resources. But I think one of the other things that is happening is a shift in the portfolio of how you import your natural gas. So natural gas imports represent 30% of Brazil's consumption. Uh, So it's a huge part. But 70% of those imports come from Bolivia. And Bolivia's natural gas production has declined by 25% in the last five years. That's a decline of 3% per year. Uh, Mm. So... Uh, in order to answer your question is first, I, I do think that they have to de- develop uh, and they have to push for domestic gas production, but they also have to become much more diversified and create more reliability for their electricity sector, in part due to this uncertainty about Bolivia's gas production in the future. It has. It is one of the reasons, actually, why Argentina had to come back or Argentina's LNG exports were up so high last year. I think of about more than 50% or between 50 to 60% higher than in 2019. Granted, 2019 was a particularly low year for consumption, but nonetheless, you did have quite substantial growth in LNG imports from Argentina. But that is coming because of lower imports of Bolivia's natural gas piped uh, to Argentina and lower also imports to Brazil. And so, yes, Brazil in last year saw the highest level of LNG imports that it has ever seen in history, but it has. This is not the highest level of natural gas imports in 2014, which is the other date that we look at when we look at this peak of LNG imports from Brazil. And there was also an energy crisis related to uh, these kinds of things. It was not the peak of natural gas imports. It was in 2014 where they saw the most important increase in natural gas imports ever, and the pull was from from Bolivia. And since then, they've been trying to develop natural gas production. And it has been increasing. In Brazil, it has been increasing. In Argentina, it has been increasing as well. There's more volatile in Argentina just because of uh, maybe policy uncertainty. Mm. But I think in both cases, what you're seeing is that because of the uncertainty of Bolivia's gas imports in the medium term, or not that they're not going to continue, it's just that they're not probably not going to continue in the same to the same level they are using lng export capacity sorry import capacity that it's there to serve as a cushion right you know and that's part of the problem with uh, with south america lng imports is that they're not only seasonal they're very volatile uh, it completely depends so it's the last resort it's the the marginal the marginal uh, pool if you don't have any other thing that you can use internally because natural gas uh, imports that are from bolivia are cheaper, hydroelectricity is cheaper, domestic gas prices are cheaper, you know, and then you use your LNG as a way to create resilience. And so because 
you are shifting some somewhat your it, it's not shifting it's just creating more capacity of natural gas fire capacity at the same time that you're creating more renewable capacity of wind and solar is that because hydro has become much more or there are more risks to hydro linked to this climate change. It's just that they have to be, they have to increase the resilience of the electricity generation uh, sources. And that implies increasing LNG import capacity, which means potentially pulling on LNG in the future. And so it's that's why one of the questions that you had is, is this going to continue? It does seem that it's going to be strong in 2022 because water reservoirs in Brazil are not yet back to where the regulators want it to be. And you do have a, a certain level that you have to meet. And so therefore you're going to continue with with uh, electricity, you know, thermal electricity. But it, it's completely <laughs> dependent on rainfalls and so and on water on water reservoirs. And so it's a very volatile. Yeah. So if, if, what you're saying essentially is that the base load option is is, is moving from you know, hydropower as a backup to the to renewables to natural gas obviously, obviously depends on the region, but that seems to be sort of sort of what you're saying. Is the backup? I think that's the the best way to to define it. Yeah, and you also mentioned something very interesting the last time we spoke. You said something along the lines of, you know, to import LNG. It's actually quite simple. It doesn't require uh, this this great sort of multi year, multi billion dollar infrastructure project. It's actually quite a simple option to get the fuel into the country. Well, and because it has become much the technology relating to this LNG import tankers uh, have become so much so flexible that more countries in the region are joining in. And so you have, yes, you have Mexico, you have Chile, you have Argentina, you have Brazil, you have Jamaica, you now have Panama, Colombia. And so the list of countries that are are joining in the uh, LNG import capacity, building LNG import capacity so that you have it there as a backup, I think is, is just increasing, which tells you that there's something there about just trying to increase reliability. Yeah. But let's let's shift a little bit into politics because unfortunately energy is intertwined with politics in, in Latin America, as you know. There seems to be a new sort of wave of, of leftist leaders in the region that, that are quite unlike, you know, the older leftists, the Chavezes and, and even Lopez Obrador in Mexico. What can we learn from the successes and sort of the failures of, of resource nationalism and their approaches to the energy sector? And let's focus, let's focus on Mexico. So what I've seen is that one of the consequences of resort nationalism is that it is really contradicts energy security. And there's no other place that exemplifies this as Mexico. So Mexico is sitting on, you know, a, a very acceptable oil and gas resources. And yet it imports a significant amount of its natural gas needs from, from the U.S. It has not been able to develop this locally. And oil production has fallen significantly from its peak. And it's not clear that it can be that you're going to have a significant increase in oil production in the future, even if the government is trying very hard to move in that direction. Unlike what is happening in other countries that are moving away from fuel, you know, hydrocarbon fuels, it seems that Mexico is, is investing a significant, quite quite a lot of money into expanding its refinery capacity. So it's just that all of these things being more nationalistic, that's just your right as a, as a, as a country. It's just that is that the 
the result has been that you become, instead of a net oil exporter, you become a net energy importer. And so, and I say this because I think one of the things that occurs in oil and gas is that you look at, at risks that are above ground risk as well as below ground risks. And mm. so a country that in the 1970s and 1980s was a net oil and gas importer like Brazil went through a significant liberalization, embraced just a, a different set of rules, inviting private sector participation, and uh, it it panned out. I mean, the result was 10 years later, Brazil, Petrobras is the largest oil producing company in the region, a, a company that in the 1970s was in, just importing oil. And so now it's a, it's a powerhouse in terms of oil exports. And, and so there's a, there's a lesson there, right? And so mm. Venezuela, which is, the I think, the uh, extreme case of resource nationalism, you see the lessons uh, there. Mexico is a much more milder case. It's, it's about... Um, trying to reduce its dependence on oil and gas imports from the U.S. in a way in which you are closing investments, private sector investments in your own resources. But it, it does put a lot of then budget constraints on the national oil and gas companies because these investments are very, very expensive and you do have the ability to work with joint ventures or to bring capital from outside yeah. that increases the uh, investment capacity of the national company just by operating in the home country. And so if you, you, you can close your borders, but you still need the CAPEX. It's just that the, you're importing the CAPEX, the, the CAPEX and the oil and gas investments from outside. And so if it's, it's done through imports instead of domestic production. Yeah. Well, let's, let's stay on the topic a little bit. You were the, the chairwoman for CITCO for, for two years which is the refinery owned by, by PDVSA in Venezuela. In Mexico, just this week, uh, we've heard that the Deer Park refinery sale was complete, which is this refinery in Texas that the Mexico government has bought. And then there are also reports that Dos Bocas, which is a refinery that the president there is building, is running far over budget. Uh, so we're talking massive investments in refinery in refineries that m- might be going elsewhere. What, what do you make of Mexico's focus on the refinery business as sort of the central pillar of its energy policy? Well, so you mentioned the, the experience that I had as chairwoman of Seco Petroleum Corporation in the 2019-2021 period or end of 2020 period. Right in the middle of the pandemic. Yes, I, throughout the pandemic. So what I what I saw is that the refining system in the Gulf Coast is one of the most competitive refining systems in the planet. It is. Uh, I saw a a uh, quite a very you know resourceful and uh, technologically advanced refinery system in the context of domestic demand in the U.S., which is probably shifting away to electricity vehicles, at least from the transportation sector, so that you are going to have maybe even idle refining capacity, right? And so during the pandemic, there were refining units that were closed and converted to renewable fuels. There were other refining units uh, closed and converted to storage terminals. So there's a and probably an oversupply, overcapacity of refining in the U.S. and maybe Europe, given policy changes and shifts towards other kinds of sources of transportation based either on renewables or on electricity vehicles. So, so the thing about that is that you have to understand where the world is and where demand is and where supply is, because at the same time, the U.S. The refining system has become 
a massive or a very significant exporter of refining products to the region, mm. in part because the region continues to export oil, but it is importing petroleum products because the experience that you're talking about refinery in Mexico has been in the, the experience of refining in other places, not only in Mexico, right? And so when I look at how Brazil is navigating the changing dynamics in the energy markets, what is it doing? It is streamlining, it is selling downstream assets, which are low margin type of assets. And so in order to become an even more profitable company. And so if the refining system in the U.S. can produce oil in a cleaner, cheaper way and export it back to the region, which is, has been doing uh, 50% of the uh, refining exports of the U.S. go to Latin America, it just, uh, from the point of view of opportunity cost, it's just so costly to build refineries. And because they're built by the national oil companies, it means that these are, you know, national companies do contribute to the uh, to fiscal revenues. And so it is a decision about how you're going to use your dollars, you know, about dollars from the public sector. Are you going to use them in refineries? Are you going to use them in developing, helping develop uh, more education or more health or climate adaptation capabilities? It is a, it's a, it's a choice. You have budget constraints. And so your budget constraints means that it's, you have to think very hard where you put your money so that you as a company and as a country can be resilient in the context of the energy transition, right? And so that's how I see it, that it's your right to build the refinery. But I think you just started this conversation saying they also bought a refinery in Texas. And so so they bought 300 thousand barrels per day of refining capacity at a much lower cost than what they're building a new a completely new refinery which tells me that this is a developmental regional developmental issue you know it's you're building a refinery in this state because you also think that you're going to uh, bring jobs but refining in general is a uh, not a very high labor intensity kind of industry. So in general, it's just about the choices that you make, the opportunity, the cost that they, that they come with. And in the context of uh, the risks that come to Latin American countries, particularly oil exporting countries in the context of the energy transition. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, you just you just mentioned the cost. I think uh, the Deer Park refinery's cost was, was bought for under a billion dollars and Dos Bocas is exceeding $10, $10 billion in cost already, uh, which is quite a difference. Okay, finally, Luis, I don't want to keep you any longer. Let's look into the future. What, who do you see as, as the winners in terms of the national oil companies? I would imagine you'd say, you know, Ecopetrol and, and, you know, these companies that are moving more towards being energy companies and focusing on on ESGs. Do you, do you see, you know, CCUS projects? Do you see hydrogen blending? Where, where, where do you see the, the natural gas industry going in Latin America looking ahead the next 10 years? So I think there's a lot of interesting things happening in Latin America, not only in the traditional national companies. You, you mentioned Petrobras and, and yes, uh, Ecopetrol in Colombia seem to be the uh, companies that are have a head start in how they're thinking strategically of how they're going to operate under a different kind of energy market. So, but there are other countries that are thinking about their path as well. And uh, and so you do have Chile, which is the country that's farthest on the hydrogen part uh, and the hydrogen pathway. So the energy transition does bring costs and it's challenging for the region, but it also can represent an opportunity. And so there, there's not just one pathway. There are 
other things happening as well in Argentina that are interesting, things happening in Chile that are interesting, in Colombia, in Brazil. I mean, even if we discuss something that is, uh, you know, resource nationalism in, in Mexico, one of the interesting and almost ironic things that I find about Mexico is that Mexico can become, might become even an LNG exporter with the Sempra project. So you invested in very reliable infrastructure, right? You know, 20 years ago or, or have been investing in the last 20 years. And so now you are using that infrastructure to make arbitrage between natural gas import prices and LNG export prices. And so you might, even in this context of the energy transition where, yes, we have questions about, or other people have questions about the role of natural gas, but let's, let's, let's just assume that, there's a, that this is at least a transitional fuel and that the LNG and natural gas imports or natural gas production and, and consumption will continue for the foreseeable future. Imagine if even Mexico becomes an exporter of LNG. And so it's it's an interesting development, I think. It is, yeah. And that that's that that is fascinating. You talk about all the issues that Mexico has, and it could become, you know, quite a significant export of LNG as well. Luisa, let's 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 leave it there. Thank you so much for your insight. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I do hope to to be able to have you back on the on the podcast in the future. Thank you, Christopher. It was uh, delightful to talk to you about these very interesting issues, and thank you for the invitation. Pleasure is mine. Bye. Be sure to check out NGI's newly updated Mexico Gas Price Index and Mexico Data Suite, which includes independent prices at major import border locations, cheapest to deliver options at key Mexico hubs, monthly or bid-week prices for all Mexico hubs, Mexico forward curves going out for 120 months, Mexico market analysis with commentary from active buyers and sellers, and pipeline utilization figures to identify interruptible transport opportunities. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.